Good morning, everyone. Had the joy yesterday of watching my 79-year-old uncle get remarried. Um, some of you are laughing. Were you there? <laughs> it was supposed to be a short wedding, 12 minutes. Then they got to the part where his son, my cousin, who did the officiating of the ceremony, looked at his dad and his mom the being you have to understand my uncle um, used to double date with her when they were in high school but both my uncle's wife passed away and her husband passed away and now they got reunited sort of like a little high school you know sort of cute thing yeah okay I say that because every time I go to visit my mom and dad my uncle's there up from South Carolina visiting and he's like a teenage boy getting home after curfew, all giggly, and yeah. Anyway, telling us things, I don't want to hear that, uncle. Anyway, so he goes, you may kiss the bride. So you can imagine his son who's doing the officiating, looking at his dad, saying, you may kiss the bride. And it's usually, isn't that point when the parents are like, you stop that, and now the kids are saying, dad, you do this? Okay, it didn't make sense, but <clears throat> you may kiss the bride, and it was a sh very short wedding. You know, 79, and it's, you know, they're there, they already know what's going on. They have a great, beautiful ceremony. My uncle stops and looks at his bride-to-be and starts this long, when I look into your eyes, I see stars. And we're all like, I leap through the valley with the lilies. And we're all like, oh, don't go to Song of Solomon, please. Just don't go there. And he continued, and everybody's laughing. He's laughing, his bride laughing, and she's begging, just kiss me, okay? Oh, and then <clears throat> he finally did give her a kiss, but I think the kiss took five minutes and the ceremony 12, so a little, a little bit longer than they planned. But anyway, it was a very joyful time. And it was something, though, that as I watched, they were preparing for this wedding over the past few months, and, and we sort of from outside got to watch this. A lot of preparation for this expectation of something big, something special for them. And so it was really fun to watch this older couple act like little kids in, uh, as this incredible ceremony. Um, but I was thinking about this, all the things that took place within this past week. Um, there's news of somebody in our church who's expecting a baby, and it, not us. And uh, there's news of a family member uh, of people in our church who passed away. And then there's news of a family member in our church who had to have surgery. And, and there's all kinds of up and down of emotions and expectations and, and just different things go on. And it's good to pause and come together and say, God, can you relate to all this in our life? Like a big roller coaster ride? And God says, yeah, I'm here with you through all of it. So Kathy, and what you did in sharing this morning with the children's sermon, right with where we're going in Scripture today, God is with us through all of this, through the celebration, through the low moments, through the tough moments. Um, through what's going on. I know, you know, Thanksgiving's past. Christmas is approaching. So with this holiday coming now, there's all kinds of preparation and emotions go all over the place. And, and I was thinking about this. As you're preparing, you already have a daily routine, right? You already have down, this is the way my week's supposed to go. This is what I've got planned. But now you throw in, oh, the holidays are coming. We've got family get-togethers, so that means there's going to be some shopping, some cleaning, get the Christmas cards out, decorations, you're uh, maybe doing some baking, you got parties to plan, and uh, to, you know, some of this is, is great, but to others of you, it's like, this is just more stress. I already have a routine down, and it just adds to it. So again, we look at it differently, 
And, uh, but what I understand is this, a lack of preparation will cause you something. So for those of you that enjoy this time of the year and all the holidays and all the emotions all over the place, you, you know you have to prepare. If you're going to get the Christmas cards out, you better get them now. If you're going to start decorating, you better do it now. You, know, you start planning out, because if you don't, you'll, you'll miss the sale, and it's going to cost you financially. You're going to all of a sudden be strapped with, oh, I have to stay up later now because I didn't get this done. Now you're physically zapped. And then you're emotionally strapped as well because, well, I, I forgot to do this for that person, and oh, now I, hope, I, don't, I think I hurt their feelings, and then they hurt mine. Okay, so we've got all this going on, and so we understand this, that a lack of preparation will probably cause you something. So this season, I want you to think about this. This season has a part of preparation. Let me hear you say preparation. So there's some preparation that goes on for this season, okay? And then there's also expectation. Let me hear you say expectation. There's preparation for the season, but there's also expectation. We have a lot of things that we're expecting to take place. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. For those of you that have elementary or preschool age children, uh, maybe even junior high kids, um, let me ask you this. Don't answer this out loud. But what's it like trying to get your child up on Christmas morning? You have any problem with that at all? I'm sort of curious, parents. Some of you are like, no, I'm trying to give them sedatives at night so they don't wake up right away in the first thing in the morning, right? You're like, they're already up at night. We might as well do Christmas, Christmas Eve. So hard to wait because they're so excited, right? There's all that expectation. So it's hard for them to sleep. So they're up, ready to go. Now, let me share another thing with you. What's it like, parents, same parents, okay, getting them up on the first day of school after Christmas break? How's that expectation going there, huh? Do you see the difference? See, the attitude and the preparation all changes because of the expectation. Because there's such great expectation for Christmas, you don't have to prepare much at all to get them up, right? But when the expectation is really low, we're going back to school, oh boy, here comes a lot of preparation. We're going to have to get things around the night before. We're going to have to make sure the alarm clock goes off. I'm probably going to have to go get them three times. I'm going to put on my happy face to get them ready for school because I know they don't want to go completely changes, doesn't it? There's a story in the New Testament that prepares us, let me hear you say preparation, for one of the greatest events, if not the greatest event ever, let me hear you say expectation. Here's what it is. God is going to come to this planet and dwell among us. Think about that for a second. We read it all the time. We sing about it all the time. Just think about it. Pause and think about it. God is going to come to this planet and dwell among us. The expectation is huge. The question is, is the preparation ready? Are we ready for that? Were the people ready for it 2,000 years ago when Jesus first came, when God first came to this planet and dwelt here among us? Now, as we do this through Advent, we think about when he's going to return. When is Jesus Christ going to come back and be with us again and we with him? Incredible expectation. Emmanuel. Just think about it. When you sing all these Christmas songs, we don't sing many songs with the name Emmanuel in it throughout the rest of the year, do we? It seems like one month out of the year we sing songs with Emmanuel. And we hear the song Emmanuel, God with us. It's too bad we don't sing that more often, right? God with us. For years, this event was anticipated, 
talked about and with great hope that it would arrive. But for those who waited and waited and waited, time passed and nothing happened. I'm sure they felt great disappointment. You know, even between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's about a 400-year period where nothing happened. Those people came and gone. Where's the Messiah? Where's Emmanuel, God with us? Nothing happened. All that excitement, expectation just seemed doused and put out. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 with me. Luke chapter 1. We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. You need one over there? Can I have one of the high school guys get up or Oh, you got it. Never mind. Luke chapter 1. Here's where we're going to pick up the story and... Before we start the story, yeah. Before we start the story, this is the way it works. We need to establish a few things, okay? So let's pick it up, Luke chapter one, starting in verse one. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us that took place. Verse two, they used as their source material the reports circulating among us from the early disciples and other eyewitnesses of what God has done in fulfillment to his promises. Verse 3, having carefully investigated all these accounts from the beginning, I've decided to write a careful summary for you to reassure you of the truth of which you were taught. Now, Luke wrote this gospel knowing that the life of Jesus and his history uh, has already been written with some and passed along verbally with others. You know, there's, it says the previously mentioned writings contain already commonly known and believed things among Christians. There were things that were already being written about Jesus. And they were being passed around. There was stories that were orally being spoken, verbally being shared with one another. And that was being listened to as well. Now Luke is a doctor. And therefore he's a man that really likes to investigate, a man of science and research. So as he studies and as he researches things, he takes into account all these things that are already being written about Jesus, and then he goes and he carefully investigates other people, talking with them. What did you hear about Jesus? Well, tell me about your account with Jesus. How did he heal you? Did he touch you? What, what, you know, he goes around and talks to all these people, the disciples, Mary, and others. And he tells us that prior to the accounts of life of Jesus, uh, they were based on the words of eyewitnesses. So those who were there from the very beginning with Jesus, Luke is finding them. He's documenting everything, writing it all down. And as he does this, he's very careful because here again, the world then, as today, I want you to think about this, longs for what Christianity offers. But they want to know, is your faith founded on fact? Is this true? Did this really happen? Do you have evidence? What we believe is not a made-up fairy tale. I don't know if you've ever ran into somebody before and you tell them about the Bible, oh, that's just all made up. That's just a story. You know, Jesus walked, how can anybody walk on water? How could a, a fish swallow anybody and they live in there for three days? It's such a fairy tale. It's all made up. So as Luke investigates, he's bringing all these facts and all these truths into account to solidify our faith. But remember, we, we don't believe because of the facts. Because okay? a lot of people need the facts to believe, right? Our faith is not based on these facts. Faith is believing in what we don't see. We know that in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we live by faith, 
not by sight. The beautiful thing is, here's our faith in God above and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in His Spirit. We don't need the evidence, but it's all there. And it helps us in our faith. So as you look at verse 3, look at that again. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've decided to write a careful account for you. He's writing this to Theophilus, and he's writing this to us and others. He says, so you can be certain of the truth, everything that you were taught. I want to make sure you know all that stuff you're taught. I want to make sure you know this is for certain. He's not, you know, Luke was not one of those who was an eyewitness of the events himself. So he had to really do a great investigation. He put himself in the same line, though, as Matthew and as Mark and others who wrote firsthand experience. He wanted to have diligent research so he had a perfect understanding of what was taking place. Now, I'm sharing all this with you, and I'm making sure, because we need to know this. The one who wrote this book, the information is accurate. Okay? Because at Christmas time, we hear so many stories. Aren't there, there's a lot of good, fun Christmas stories, aren't there? Kids watch them on TV, and they start believing all kinds of things. And the Christmas story of Jesus Christ becomes mixed in with all those frosty snowmen, Santa Claus, you know, Jack Frost, all these wonderful stories at Christmas. Kids start to wonder, is this really true? Because if some of these other stories are questionable, is this story questionable? It's important for us as believers in Christ to say, you know what? This is accurate. This is truthful. It isn't a made-up story or a fairy tale. It wasn't something that somebody came along and said, this sounds like a good read. Let's, let's, let's do this, okay? So with that being said, we are open to prepare now to read a book within a book, the book of Luke here and discover an incredibly accurate, life-changing message. With that, let's continue on in verse 5. It all begins with a Jewish priest, Zechariah, who lived when Herod was king of Judea. Zechariah was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and now they were both very old. Now these events happened at a definite time. Let me hear you say definite time. It was a definite time. It's right here. Again, Luke does a great job of accurately recording everything. This is when Herod was king of Judea. Look at historical records. You can go back and you find this. This was the man known as Herod the Great. It's at the uh, basically end of a long and terrible reign. When people looked at him, you know, they think, well, you know, he was king there and uh, king of Judea, so he must have been a descendant of Israel. No, he wasn't, actually, uh, but of Jacob's brother Esau. So he was an Edomite, okay? He was known probably more so for his spectacular building programs that he did, but more so for his cruelty and harsh treatment. His par really paranoid cruelty, really. It drove him to execute many, including family members. If you think about this, a great king who executed his own family. That's Herod. Now, if we go on to read, it says this events happened to a definite people. I mean, you say definite people. So again, accurately written, here it is. There's a Jewish priest named Zechariah, member of the priestly order of Abijah, wife Elizabeth from the priestly line of Aaron. Again, you trace through ancestry, you trace through the roots of these people, you trace through history, and you find them all lined up accordingly as set. Zechariah and Elizabeth, religious, righteous, obedient, but yet there's something that took them apart from everybody else, stigmatized by the fact of their barrenness. 
Elizabeth was unable to have children. I want you to pause and think about something for a moment. Because sometimes at Christmas, we also not only have all that expectation and joy and excitement, but there's also disappointment, isn't there? We catch a glimpse of, glimpse of disappointment at Christmas because maybe somebody didn't get something they really wanted. I thought I was going to get this for Christmas. And they didn't get it. It could be something as simple as that, right? But what is it that you really wanted? What is it that you, you don't have? And because you don't have it, it makes you feel like an outcast, like a misfit. I don't have this. It seems like everybody else does. It might be a relationship. You know, for some of you, you really like those Hallmark uh, movie channel and watch all those good Christmas Hallmark movies. And some of you are like, I'm so sick of them because it's always a love story. And you're sitting there by yourself watching and you're just like, oh, for all those people out there with somebody special, enjoy the Hallmark channel. Turn back to Duck Dynasty or something. Watch something else. Take my mind off this lovey-lovey. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's a Christmas time. It seems so special. But there's others who sit during Christmas and it's like, this is no fun. Maybe it's health. Maybe this is the first Christmas you're going to be without somebody because you lost them. Or maybe this is going to be your last Christmas with somebody because you know they're probably not going to make it till next year. Maybe you've got somebody that's just struggling with health and it's just a different Christmas. Maybe you're upset because you don't have a skill or an ability that somebody else has. You look at what somebody else has and you're like, why can't I be like them? Why can't I have what they have? Why can't I do what they do? You see, Christmas is a great time, but also there's a time when all of a sudden we start comparing and thinking about what we don't have, and there's some disappointment there. And I look at this story, and for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they couldn't have children. I mean, to not have children in biblical times, like today, you know, it's disappointing, but then it was devastating because you don't have anybody to carry on your family name. You don't have anybody to take care of you when you get older. It was really a social, social stigma that looked at you and said, oh, shame on you. People felt like God hated me. God's punishing me because I don't have kids. So for them, it was embarrassing to not have children. So here's the problem. Their dream had been shaken and shattered. What they hoped for was gone. We, we dream of things we want at Christmas and throughout the year, and we don't get it. Well, here, this was their dream that was being crushed. What is it for you? What is it that you have, one of those things that's those dream breakers? And I'm, I'm not talking about oh, my sports team loss or, hey, I've got this electronic device and I can't get to work or it got taken away or I can't have it. And it's like, oh, this is the end of my world. You know what? I'm not talking about that. Okay? I'm talking about a deep desire within your heart that has not been fulfilled, that it's been, it just seems like it's just, there's no price tag to fix what's hurting in here. For that reason, when you think about this, you fear, you fear your dream will never be fulfilled. You fear that this is never going to, you know, come to life and eventually you begin to believe that, you know what, because my dreams are never going to be fulfilled, my hope ceases. My heart hardens and my focus changes. And all of a sudden emotionally we change and that causes spiritual change as well. Are you there? Do you know somebody who is? Three words for you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Look at the person next to you and say, don't give up. 
Let's look at verse 8, chapter 1 of Luke. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week, as was the custom of the priests. He was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary and burn incense in the Lord's presence. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Now, I'll give you some history here and how this all goes down. If you can sort of picture this with me, okay? Only priests from a particular lineage could serve in the temple, okay? Just a certain group of people. And over the years, the number of priests multiplied, and they believe there was probably close to 20,000 priests at the time of Jesus, okay? This was a large number. So they used what was called a lot system to determine who would serve as a priest. So the lot to serve might fall on a priest maybe only just once in your lifetime. So if you're one of those priests and you want to have the incredible honor of going into the temple and, and being a part of this, you just sit there and pray, I hope I get that chance, I hope I get that chance. Okay. To a godly man like Zechariah, this was probably the biggest event of his life. It's a tremendous privilege. If you're a coach, it's that opportunity to get to the, the biggest game, you know. Uh, just whatever that is, that promotion, a job, you think, if I could just get to that, you know. That's Zachariah's dream right here, one of them, okay? Surely he wondered, what would it be like to enter that holy place? God, it's something special to speak to him maybe if he'd ever had that chance to get into that holy place. And God, what are you going to share with me? What are you going to tell me? Oh, the honor to come in here into the presence of God. So it's easy to imagine that Zachariah had maybe asked other priests who had had that opportunity, what was it like for you? What happened? What can I expect if I ever have that chance? Well, the whole event was filled with enormous expectation. Let me hear you say expectation. Oh, one more time. Expectation. All right, caught somebody off guard. So there were several lots that were cast to determine who did what at the morning sacrifice. Matter of fact, there were three. The first lot determined who would cleanse the altar and prepare its fire. Then the second lot determined who would kill the morning sacrifice, sprinkle the altar, the golden candlestick, and the altar of incense. The third lot determined who would come and offer the incense. That was the biggest one, okay? This was the most privileged duty. And those who received the first and second lots would repeat that at the evening sacrifice, but not the third lot, okay? So to offer the incense would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that fell upon Zechariah. Okay? Now picture this, before dawn, before the sun's coming up, think of it, before dawn, Hundreds of worshipers gathered together. Just can you imagine? We'll all come in here to gather together, okay, at the temple. Morning sacrifice begins when the incense priest, the one who got that, walked toward the temple through the outer courts. So as he walked up through the outer courts, he struck this gong-like instrument, and at the sound of that gong, the Levites assembled and got ready to lead the people gathered in a song of worship, just as we did this morning. We have a song of worship. Then the other two priests chosen by that morning walked up the temple on each side of the priest who was chosen with the incense. All three entered the holy place together. One priest set the burning coals on the golden altar, and then the other priest arranged the incense so it was ready to go up. Then the two priests would leave the temple, and then the priest with the incense would then be left alone in the holy place. Now, in front of him was this golden altar. It was 18 inches square, three feet high. On that small table lay the burning coals. And you can just sort of imagine these wisps of smoke coming up off these burning coals. Right? Sort of rising up. That's what you only believe. You only put the incense there, and their, their prayers went up to God. Right? Behind the gold altar was this huge, thick curtain. 
because behind that was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And where no man would enter except the high priest on the day of atonement. Now as he faced the golden altar with the curtain behind him, on his right would be a table for the showbread, and on his left would be the golden lampstand, which would provide the only light in this room. Now, when the people outside saw the two priests walk out of the temple, they knew it was time to offer the incense on the coals, that it was going to be a time of prayer. Okay? So those hundreds of people, you can imagine this, okay, this is how they did church. Hundreds of people, they would get down on their hands and knees, and they would get down, and they would put their hands out, and they would, at that time, just start praying. And they knew that their prayers were being prayed on the inside as well. And they spread their hands out, and at that moment, the incense is going on to the coals, and in the presence of God, this priest is now offering the prayers for a whole nation, for the whole body of worshipers. Now, there followed several minutes of dead silence. Okay? As all the temple precincts, basically Zechariah lingered in prayer in the holy place, the most solemn experience of his life. You can imagine what it was for him. Okay, now think about this. What do you think Zechariah prayed for? If this was your opportunity as a priest to be in this holy place, in a holy moment, what do you say to God? Now, as your duty as the priest, obviously, you know, you've thought about this beforehand. You probably didn't write it down because back then they memorized everything. And, and so in his mind, he's probably going through this. He also knew how long to pray because he attended the morning sacrifice as a worshiper before, so he knew how long he needed to be out there, how long he must be in here praying. He probably prayed for the needs of the nation of Israel. They are tired of the oppression of Rome. Prayed for the coming Messiah. When is he coming? When is the Messiah coming? We've been praying this for years. We have such high expectation. Let me hear you say expectation. God, are you going to send the Messiah? I wonder, did he throw in maybe a little personal prayer too? God, you know, Elizabeth and I really wanted a child. But would that be selfish? Would he even do that? Because he's sitting there thinking, how old am I? How old is my wife? We're beyond years of having kids, right? Look at verse 11. Zechariah was in the sanctuary when an angel of the Lord appeared, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was overwhelmed with fear. Verse 13, but the angel said, don't be afraid. Right? How many times in biblical history we read there, you know, and an angel shows up, what do they always say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for God has heard your prayer. How awesome would that have been? You're there, you're praying, you send something, you open up your eyes, and there's an angel. Okay. Now, we're not talking this, you know, model-like guy, long flowing hair, like, hey, okay, you know what I'm saying, okay? And we're not talking a cute little naked baby either, angel, okay? This is a creature of God, awesome, obviously fear-stricken, you know? We can't even imagine how glorious this creature of God was, this angel, and he looks at him, and he's his face must have said it all. Because the first thing the angel said is, do not be afraid. Or if you read the, the King James Version, it's always what? Fear not. Fear not. You know, when you hear that, can you imagine? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. What do, what do you hear? Fear, right? It's funny. The other day I was at a basketball game, and I was doing the books, 
And so the, guy, the bench is on both sides of me, the coaches and the players. And I love sitting there. One, I like to, to help out, but I like hearing what goes on on the sideline, okay? And of course, the kids are running down the court, and the coaches, don't foul them, don't foul them, don't foul them. Anybody want to know what he did? He fouled them, of course. We, 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 we always do that. We never hear the do not part or the don't. It's funny, and we've always been told, don't speak in negatives. Speak in positives, but we do that anyway. Don't foul, don't foul. Well, you, guess what? Just foul. Don't miss it, don't miss it. What are they going to do? Miss it. Uh, do not fear. Don't be afraid. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm still afraid. Okay? That's why we often hear in the Old Testament language, too, you'll see them say, take courage. Take courage. Go through some time and say how many times we hear that phrase. It's used often, okay? But when this angel appeared and said, fear not, I'm sure he's overwhelmed with a little fear. It's doubtful that Zechariah prayed for his son, as I said, because, again, it seemed like a selfish thing, but secondly, again, they were well advanced in years. But we know this, they've been praying for a long, long time for the Messiah to come. And I'm sure that was part of his prayer. But I want you to think about this. If this was you, what have you been praying for a long time? And you've been praying and praying and praying. It's like, God, when are you going to answer this? We pray for the salvation of a spouse or a child. We pray for the calling or a ministry. We pray that God would bring that special person to us. But after years of heartfelt prayer, we give up in discouragement, right? I'm sure Zachariah and Elizabeth have prayed and prayed after year after year. And by now, they've probably given up on a few things of certain prayers, and maybe they no longer prayed for a son. But God was going to give them one. See, sometimes we're in that place, and we sometimes begin in the smallest of ways to doubt the love of God and the care for God. You know, God, do you really care about me? Do you really love me? I mean, I've been praying for this, and, and, and it seems like the more I pray, the less you respond, God. Do you really care about me? Do you really love me? We've prayed for this before, and, you know, and I, I can imagine, you know, because we've gone through this, and I know Armstrong, you've gone through this with surgery. We've got to do a surgery again. I mean, God, didn't you do it right the first time? And, you know, we think about our surgery with our son. You think about all these things. It's like, why? I mean, Zechariah's reaction to the angel's promise, he's probably thinking, you know, when, this, when the angel said about you're going to have a son, let's read this, okay? Let's read this. Zechariah's in the sanctuary and, and praying. In verse 12, overwhelmed with fear, the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for God's heard your prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You're name him John. Okay, Zechariah would be going, God, I've, I've been praying for years. It never happened. Where were you in all those other times? And now you're giving me this? It was so hard for him to believe. Zechariah had no idea that God would answer this too greatest desires of his heart at one time. I'm giving you a son, and I'm sending the Messiah. Oh, Zechariah, how incredible that must have been to be in the presence of this angel and to hear from this angel, a messenger from God, that his two greatest prayers are going to be answered in one moment. No idea what was going on in his heart. I mean, I can't even think about how joyful that must have been or how questioning it might have been. He'd probably completely given up on the idea of being a dad. There's probably a hope that was crushed over the years of disappointment. But see, God hadn't given up on Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want to remind you this. God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. I want to read to you from Isaiah 43. It came out late this week in the email, and I apologize for that. But Isaiah 43 is an incredible passage. I want to read this to you. 
just listen carefully. I'm actually going to have you repeat certain times, okay? But now, Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. God created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says this, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have paid the price for you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you won't drown. When you walk through fires of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for you because you're precious to me. I honor you and I love you. Hear that? God says you're precious to me. I honor you and I love you. Verse 5 goes on to say, Do not be afraid. Fear not. I am with you. I'll gather you and your children from east and west. I'll say to the north and south, Bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. Bring all who claim to me as their God. I've made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Now you have to understand, Isaiah 43 was written to those who were held captive in Babylon. And God said, I'm going to free them. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore them to the new nation. And this chapter also points forward to the return of Christ when he would come, as we're reading about in Luke 1. I'll go on and read on here, verse 10. It says this, But you're my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord, you're my servant. You've been chosen, listen, you've been chosen to know me, to believe in me, and understand that I am alone God. There is no other God. There's never been, never will be. I, yes, I'm the Lord. There's no other Savior. First I predicted your rescue, then I saved you, and I proclaimed it to the world. No foreign God has ever done this. You're witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. Listen to verse 13 of Isaiah 43. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I've done. Did you hear that? The amazing thing is, is Isaiah's taking these words from God and prophesying the return of the people from Babylon. He's also pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 27, almost repeats these exact same words. When he says this, he goes, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Sound familiar? No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me. He's more powerful than anyone else, and no one can snatch them from the Father's hand, for the Father and I are one. God loves you. God is with you. And when you stand like I stand with Zechariah, praying to God, pouring out our prayers on behalf of other people and ourselves, we wonder sometimes, God, when are you going to answer? God says, I'm answering now. For some of us, you're going to hear those answered prayers. For some of us, we're going to have to wait on those answered prayers. But God always answers. And God is with you. And when you're not hearing him, he is still with you. I love in John chapter 10, verse 27. Matter of fact, I'm going to borrow one of your kids. And I'm going to show you something real quick. Because this is how I remember this. Come up here. I'm going to read this because I want to make sure you see this. Because a lot of times, once you hold out your hand, okay, a lot of times we feel like this is us right here, this cap, okay? And we say, this is my relationship with God. And sometimes I feel like people come along and just sort of 
mess up my relationship with God, right? And some people come along and try to take me away from God. And sometimes we just sort of, you know, fall out because we're not really wanting to be close to God. But what I love in this verse says is, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Why is that? Because this is what Jesus does. Go ahead, nice tight fist on that. That nice tight fist? So, oh, you know, I can grab that. I can snatch it. Oh, now I can't snatch it. Okay, good. Because what you're doing right now is giving me a picture of John chapter 10, where Jesus said, no one can snatch him. No one can take them away. The relationship that you and I have with Jesus Christ, Satan will try to mess that up. People come try to mess it up. I can't knock it out now, can I? I can try to pry around, but you know the next part of the verse is really cool? Take your left hand and cover up your right hand. Because the next part of the verse says this, for my Father has given them to me, and he's more powerful than anyone else. It's going to represent the Father now, okay? And no one can snatch them away from him either. So now I, people want to really try to mess my relationship with God, but they can't because God has secured our relationship with him. Thank you so much. Excellent. God has secured that relationship. And sometimes we forget that, that what we read in Scripture, God wants to give us different pictures. Nobody can snatch that away because he's an incredible God. Let's finish off here in, in uh, Luke chapter 1. As the angel went on to say, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son. Your name him John. You'll be great joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He'll turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He'll be a man with spirit and power of Elijah. He'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of his fathers to their children. He'll cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. You know, Zechariah looks at this angel and says, how is this going to happen? I'm an old man now. My wife, she's old too. And the angel said, I'm Gabriel. Don't you love this? You know how we always try to tell God, don't you know what's going on in my life? And God's like, <clears throat> let me clear my throat. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. If God says, God says. If God's with you, God's with you. If God says he loves you, he loves you. Quit arguing with God. Our emotions sometimes get tumbled and tripped up and we start to argue with God. Well, this is how I... God's like, <clears throat> let me clear my throat. Maybe you didn't hear me what I said in Isaiah. Maybe you didn't hear what I said in John 3, 6. Maybe you didn't hear what I said throughout Scripture. The angel went on to say, it was, it was he, God, who sent me to bring you good news. Good news. But now since you don't believe what I said, you'll be sent and unable to speak until the child's born. My words will certainly be filled at the proper time. And, oh, this is really bummer, okay? Because if you remember, the two priests are standing outside the temple. So what happens next is the, the priest who offers the incense then comes out, and everybody waits. Everybody waits for the blessing, okay? If Zach, you know, Zechariah didn't want to believe this or whatever, all of a sudden he can't say anything. He can't even share the good news that's supposed to happen. That's a big bummer now. You know, if you're about ready to have a child and you're like, posting it on, you know, Facebook and texting and making phone calls and sending out letters. You can't do that. You can't say anything. I can't tell you about the great news that the Messiah is coming and that I'm having a baby. Okay? I can't tell you. So he has to gesture all this. Now, think about this. He comes out, and the way it works, the custom is the priest comes out of the temple as soon as he's finished praying to assure the people that he's not been struck dead by God because that's important. Okay? So he comes out, and the delay, though, started to make people a little bit nervous. Maybe he did get struck dead while he was in there. Okay? He comes out, doors of the temple, meets the other two priests outside the doors. 
Then the incense priest raises his hands and blesses the people with a blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. He blesses those people. Hundreds of gathered worshipers know what to do. They respond, bless the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. After all that, the Levites get the worship singers together and they stand in the temple steps and they start singing. They blow the trumpet and close off that worship service. Right? However, when Zechariah came out, top of the temple steps, overlooking the crowds, getting ready to raise his hands, everybody's like, what is going on? Can you imagine everybody's face? Can you imagine poor Zechariah? Because he wouldn't believe that God would answer prayers. He can't share in the joy. The promise is still good. He's just not going to be able to share in the joy immediately. Not until that baby's born. Zechariah and Elizabeth's hopes and dreams were crushed over years of disappointment, but God didn't give up on them. Even though Zechariah and Elizabeth had given up, God didn't give up on them. I want you to think about this. This is very important. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. This is very important. If there's no Zechariah, because again, we're going back to the accuracy of the written account of Luke here. If there's no Zechariah, there's no John the Baptist. Did you ever think about this? If there's no John the Baptist, there's no angel announcing the coming of the Messiah. If there's no angel announcing the coming of the Messiah, then the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah are unfulfilled. And if any of the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the first coming of the Messiah are unfulfilled, then Jesus did not fulfill those things in the New Testament. And if Jesus didn't fulfill all those things, then he did not complete God's redemptive plan for you and I, and we have to perish in our sins. This was good news for us. It was great news for us that Zechariah was faithful to God all those years, even in those moments of unanswered prayer, he was faithful to God. And he did what God had always prepared him to do for that one special moment. And then he was obedient as he walked out. As we close, I want you to think about this. I don't know if maybe you've given up on something. Maybe you've decided your dreams aren't going to happen. and Maybe you've considered, well, God doesn't know, or God doesn't know my dreams. God doesn't know my hopes. Let me tell you something. God's not a dream breaker. He's not a... Uh, uh, somebody that just wants to take your hopes and rip them up. He's God. He created us. He knows exactly what he's doing. Fear not, for our God is with us. Emmanuel. He provides for us, and at the exact time, I want you to be able to walk out of here this morning with God's truth, knowing this. God incredibly loves you. If you're feeling like Zachariah, Elizabeth right now, like, waiting God, don't give up. Our God is with us. Our God is with us, and he has great news, and we get to be a part of that. Oh, the joy when you see the full picture, when I see the full picture. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your love. We pray, Lord, now that as we sing to you, we can sing to you, Lord, with hope and with joy. I thank you, Lord, that for the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, knowing that they had such incredible dreams and thought they'll never happen. Then you reminded them. Gabriel stood there, sent from you, 
to remind them of some good news. Lord, you are the only God. You created us. You love us. You answer prayer. Lord, I know some of us right now, with all the preparation for things and we set the high expectation, Lord, help us not to forget the incredible expectation that we have of you working in our life. So, Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts, prepare our attitudes, our emotions. So, Lord, that when you speak, we recognize your voice. We don't doubt it, but we gladly accept that good news and share it with everybody else. Thank you, God, for being a God of love and mercy and grace and truth. We sing to you now. In thy name we pray. Amen.